Jeffrey Hudson was known in his own time as a wonder of the age, even a wonder of the world. Today we're exploring the life of this forgotten swashbuckler. Hello, and welcome to Footnoting History. I'm Lucy, and on this episode, I'm going to be discussing the life of Jeffrey Hudson, swashbuckling courtier and part-time diplomat, a man who was kidnapped by pirates, won an illegal duel, and served as a captain of horse in the English Civil War. What he was most famous for, however, was his size. Until the age of 30, he was about 18 inches tall. Jeffrey was known as the Queen's Dwarf, a servant and spectacle at the Royal Court of England. Dwarves were common members of 17th century courts, for reasons scholars are still exploring. Geoffrey appears to have had pituitary dwarfism, and this indirectly helped launch his career at court, a career which would both grant him celebrity and lead him into danger. In a preliminary internet search to see what Geoffrey's popular reputation today is, I found the claim that people with dwarfism were traded like Pokemon cards in the 17th century. This is blatantly untrue. But it is true that ableism and a view of Geoffrey as a wonder of nature, simultaneously extraordinary and inevitably dependent, shaped both his life and how we know about it. Answering the questions of what we know about the past and how we know it is the basic work of the historian, and answering those questions for this podcast episode turned out to be harder than I expected. Lots of sources make claims without footnotes. Shocking, I know. Moreover, pieces of Jeffrey's history are absent. So I'll be talking about historical speculation more than usual. And I'll also be recommending that someone should pick this man for the subject of a PhD thesis, as well as the subject of dramatic miniseries. But I've enjoyed my own adventures in learning more about Jeffrey Hudson, who was recommended to us by a podcast listener. So thank you both to that listener and to my girlfriend, Dr. Rachel Clark, whom I forced into being a special consultant for this episode because she specializes in studying disability in 17th century England. As I mentioned, Geoffrey Hudson was written about as a celebrity in his own day and after his death, but this was always at least partially because of his physical stature and the ways this made him exceptional in the eyes of others, a source of entertainment, sometimes of admiration, and sometimes of scorn and satire. Both ableism and assumptions about pre-modern ableism have also affected modern biography and fiction. The relationship of those with dwarfism to constructions of what we would call disability was complicated in the early modern period. People with dwarfism weren't automatically classified as deformed or monstrous, but they were very often treated as symbolic, and this was certainly true of Geoffrey. The ways in which those with dwarfism might be treated as differing from social and bodily norms might vary. We'll see this illustrated in histories of Geoffrey's life too. Another factor complicating research into Geoffrey Hudson is that he was closely linked with a queen who was the object of virulent hatred and scandal-mongering in her own time and has been the center of a variety of distorting narratives since. There's a lot we don't know about Geoffrey Hudson personally. We have no surviving letters from him, for instance. The only extant document to which he put his own hand is a receipt, written towards the end of his life. So to attempt to sketch his biography is to tell a complicated story. 
And his life is also a story about the royal court of mid-17th century England, about diplomacy, about politics, and about understandings of disability. Frequently, cursory histories of Geoffrey's life allege that his father had him presented to the queen directly. This, however, is an oversimplification, and the truth is more interesting, because Geoffrey Hudson's father was not a courtier seeking to win favor. He was a butcher, and, so a local history of 1684 informs us, of lusty stature. Geoffrey was the only one of his children to have dwarfism. And in 1626, Geoffrey was taken to the local seat of the Duke of Buckingham and presented to the Duke. At the age of seven, Geoffrey was around the age where boys of his class might start doing relatively straightforward tasks related to their future professions. But Geoffrey was ill-suited to turning a spit, or sweeping a yard, or running errands. He was presented by his family to the Duke as a rarity of nature. We don't know about the negotiations leading up to this, but since Geoffrey often told the story himself, and returned to visit his family and eventually to retire to the same neighbourhood where he grew up, we might infer that this family plan was worked out in an affectionate atmosphere. A number of later sources claim that Geoffrey's fame had already spread locally, and the Duke and Duchess of Buckingham requested to see him. But the primary sources I've looked at don't offer clues as to where the initiative lay. After he had spent some time in the service of this household, Geoffrey was introduced, fatefully, to the royal household. As one of his first biographers tells it, the Duke of Buckingham was entertaining visitors, the royal court, on progress. A politically sophisticated road trip where other people had to feed them, basically. This occurred very shortly after Henrietta Maria's marriage to Charles I. So impressing and amusing the young queen would have been particularly politically desirable. Geoffrey, as part of an evening's entertainment, was served to the table in a cold pie, a massive and almost certainly decorative pastry shell with an elaborate filling. Picture Great British Bake Off rather than a nine-inch pan, in other words. Such fillings were often spectacular, but Geoffrey himself was extraordinary even by these standards. The spectacle of a handsome boy leaping out of a pastry has perhaps been overemphasized in biographies of Geoffrey. And his first two biographers don't even agree on when the pie incident happened, when Geoffrey was introduced to the Duke of Buckingham or when he was introduced by the Duke to the Queen. But I dwell on it here because of its political significance. The Duke of Buckingham was none other than George Villiers, known in his youth and to all readers of The Three Musketeers as one of the handsomest men in England. He was a court favourite and the lover of James I, and continued to be influential in the court of James' son, Charles. When Geoffrey sprang from his pie, Charles was still a young man, in his mid-twenties, and had only been on the throne a year. Buckingham, as experienced and trusted courtier, was one of the most important men in the kingdom. What's more, he knew it. He was also, however, in a tricky position. Like all court favourites, he was much envied. Moreover, he was recently returned from a financially and politically disastrous attempt to raid the prosperous Spanish port of Cadiz. So Geoffrey, while far from a Pokemon card, could be understood in this moment as a political pawn, or a diplomatic gift, or both. Henrietta Maria was delighted with him, and he became hers. This kindness by the Duke to the young queen was politically astute a gesture of welcome in a time when such gestures were lacking. Henrietta had married Charles the previous year, three months after his coronation. She herself, like the Duke of Buckingham, was somewhat precariously situated. The English, you see, did not like her. 
For one thing, she was French. For another, far worse in the eyes of an average English subject in the 1620s, she was Catholic. Why was this such a big deal? Well, history. Catholics had tried to blow up Charles' dad, James, in what became known as the Gunpowder Plot. Remember, remember the 5th of November, that one. That was a mere 20 years before Henrietta Maria's marriage to Charles, and a few decades before that, Queen Mary had presided over a still infamous round of persecutions intended to re-Catholicize Britain. This made everyone a bit jumpy. Laws made by Elizabeth I allowed English Catholics, a group that included Geoffrey Hudson, and other religious minorities to basically worship as they pleased, as long as they also showed up to Anglican Church to say God save the Queen and basically prove they weren't plotting to kill her. Anyway, there's history. And this mattered acutely to Geoffrey's career. The Catholic faith which Geoffrey and Henrietta Maria shared may have contributed to the reported closeness between the Queen and the boy who would grow to manhood in her service. It also made the Queen and her household, of whom Geoffrey was one, vulnerable. We have evidence that Geoffrey was integrated into this household very quickly. In the same year that he entered it, he performed in a court mask, that's M-A-S-Q-U-E, alongside other members of the court in honor of the Queen's birthday. Now, a mask was a stage play with music, dancing, and poetry, and it was also more than that. It was also always a performance of political ideals in some way. In later masks in which Geoffrey was to appear, this would be very direct, with Henrietta Maria herself appearing as the Queen of Light, the Sun, in Luminalia, and Queen of the Amazons in Samosita Spolia. Both of these presented her radiant, powerful, in armor or an armor-like dress. For a widely disliked queen in a kingdom characterized by unrest and war, this was clearly aspirational, forceful statement of what the monarch and the monarchy ought to be. By performing in these masks, Geoffrey was linked symbolically to the queen and to royal power. He was also, by all accounts, extremely good at what he did, both a talented comic and a gifted dancer. And Geoffrey became enough of a celebrity in his own right that one of the suits he wore was preserved as part of a cabinet of curiosities, an early precursor of the museum, by the 1650s. His roles in these theatrical spectacles were varied. In one of his earliest performances, he was pulled out of the pocket of a giant to general hilarity. Later, in a mask performed for the Queen and commissioned from no less a person than the superstar architect and theatre designer Inigo Jones, he played a prince, albeit an infernal one. The script runs, third entry, the Queen's Dwarf, richly apparelled as a prince of hell, attended by six infernal spirits. He first danceth alone, and then the spirits, all expressing their joy for cupids coming among them. We don't know precisely how Geoffrey danced, only that he was given this dramatic solo. While Geoffrey's biographer describes this as a freakish, grotesque scene, I don't think that this inference is warranted. Especially in masks designed by Inigo Jones, court dwarves appeared in a variety of roles, and the descriptions of Geoffrey Hudson's performances specifically suggest to me that contemporary audiences viewed him not purely as a visual effect, as Nick Page has claimed, but as a performer of remarkable talents, as well as remarkable size. We have other evidence of Geoffrey's early integration into the court. By 1628, he had been painted more than once alongside the king and queen. And in 1629, he was sent to the French court as part of a diplomatic mission to bring back a French midwife for the queen. At this point, Geoffrey was still only 10 years old, but he was established as a member of the royal household with a personal servant. 
Crucially, he had learned French, and he was a good candidate for receiving gifts and favors as a proxy for his royal mistress. In a letter describing this journey, Giovanni Soranzo, Venetian ambassador to the English court, described Geoffrey as a marvelous sight and the most perfect imperfection of nature that ever was born, and therefore much beloved by his mistress. This illustrates some of the challenges in engaging with primary sources relating to Geoffrey Hudson's life. Observers like Soranzo typically objectified him, but the self-same sources testify to the important position granted to Geoffrey, not merely as a curiosity, but as a courtier. Also in the course of this voyage, Geoffrey acquired gifts worth no less than 20,000 ducats. This may be attributed to the fact that being under the direct patronage of the royal household, Geoffrey could be treated as a stand-in for them by those seeking to curry favor. The trip to France was highly successful. The journey home was not. Because in crossing the channel, the royal vessel fell prey to one of the hazards of the 17th century, pirates. Geoffrey's captivity at the hands of these Flemish pirates was brief, but it gave inspiration to a mock epic poem by Sir William Davenant. Some have claimed that this merely makes fun of Geoffrey, but I would argue that, to use a historian's favorite phrase, it's more complicated than that. It's true that the comic tone is clear from the outset. Pirates are described as searching for Geoffrey in cracks between the planks of the ship and eventually finding him under a candlestick. But also, the opening describes him as the truest servant to a state that could be given a nation out of flesh and blood. Throughout the poem, there's what I read as a somewhat awkward hedging of bets around how to handle Geoffrey's misadventures. Should this be comedy heroic, praising his resourcefulness in escaping while entertaining readers? Or satire implying that absolutely anything, a straw, a straight chicken, could be a potentially fatal peril to a diminutive adolescent sent on a man's diplomatic errand? The poem itself seems reluctant to make up its mind, and Davenant claims that he's only recounting what he has learned from a Dutch history of events. This is itself a trope, reliance on ancient, vaguely specified sources for heroic tales, but it's also arguably a way for the poet as narrator to have plausible deniability. The conclusion of the poem's second canto claims that it will be finished in a third part if popular acclaim justifies it. There is no third part. Maybe that was always intended to be part of the joke. And maybe Davenant was testing the political waters. The poem wasn't published until 1673. It was put together by one of London's most successful publishers when the king and queen and Davenant himself were all dead, and Geoffrey was an old man telling tales in a pub garden in his native Rutland. It's a curious coda to a remarkable episode in Geoffrey's life, and also not atypical of the ways in which biographers and commenters on his life attempted to address the paradox they felt his existence presented. To speak of people as little or great in 17th century England was often to speak not of their size, but of their status. If you've read Shakespeare, you know he makes a lot of puns using this potential double sense. People can be short but important, not politically little, in other words, or tall, great, without being truly great in the sense we usually use the word today. Geoffrey, a member of the Queen's household, was both handsome and witty, as all ideal courtiers were expected to be. He enjoyed royal favor. He was popular. When Van Dyck succeeded to the role of court portraitist, one of the earliest portraits he created was of Henrietta Maria and Geoffrey Hudson. It is a detail of this 1633 portrait which accompanies this episode. 
the warmth of the relationship between the queen and the young man at her side seems to shine through. But also, Geoffrey appears as a subject, unmistakably subordinate, and perhaps, as a later verse and engraving would suggest of him, thus the ideal subject, affectionate, humble, and not aspiring to additional greatness, literal or figurative. In the Van Dyke portrait, Geoffrey is wearing a suit of the same material worn by the princes, and he's carrying the queen's pet monkey, whose name was Pug, on his shoulder. So Geoffrey might be the ideal subject, or the ideal child, or the ideal pet. How much this ambiguity was designed by the queen and how much by the artist is unclear. It's unlikely that Geoffrey had much say in this representation. The linking to the royal children, though, appears to have been deliberate. In one of Henrietta Maria's letters, she comments that an ambassador mistook Geoffrey for one of the young princes. This speaks to the intimacy that Geoffrey enjoyed, but also to the ways in which he could be patronized or misjudged based on his size. The ambassador who mistook Geoffrey for a prince was clearly complimentary, but court life was fraught with hazards internal and external. While a devoted family man, Charles I was far from a popular monarch, frequently at odds with Parliament. Meanwhile, the entire continent of Europe was at war with itself. I do not have time for a Thirty Years' War tangent here, but it is worth mentioning that Henrietta Maria, related to several of Europe's crowned heads, took an acute interest in these affairs, and that Geoffrey followed her in her travels on the continent, including to the Siege of Breda in 1637, where his horsemanship and military acuity were both praised. I wish I knew more about the horses he rode and saddles he used. From earlier in his life, there are household accounts documenting a specially designed saddle for his use when he went riding and hunting with the royal family. And since Geoffrey didn't grow, it is possible that he continued using the same one. Whatever the case, he was the subject of admiring letters by soldiers and courtiers who, like the Venetian ambassador, were astonished to find an intelligent, personable, and physically capable young man who was no taller than a toddler. This is one of the episodes that convinces me that Geoffrey's life would repay further study. When the English Civil War broke out in 1642, he was still with the Queen in France. With her, he returned to England. He was named a Captain of Horse in Prince Rupert's Cavalry, and this title was not merely an empty honorific. Thomas Fuller, one of his early biographers, in describing him as a captain in the King's army in these late civil wars, comments that he was no coward. Henrietta Maria herself during this period was known as the She Majesty Generalissima, bringing troops down from the north to the royalist stronghold of Oxford. In Oxford, too, Geoffrey was part of her household, and part of a court beleaguered and, it must be said, in denial. When Henrietta Maria returned to France, Geoffrey, now using his title as Captain Hudson, went with her. And it was here that his period in royal service abruptly ended. What happened is that Geoffrey, in October 1644, fought a duel. We don't know the details, but Geoffrey issued the challenge. In other words, he was the one insulted. His opponent, a Mr. Crofts, was another member of the English court, and the brother of a royal favourite. The two men fought on horseback, which may have been intended as an equaliser between their heights. They used pistols rather than swords, again a rational choice given the difference in size between the two men. It turned out when they arrived that Crofts had not issued his last insult. He came armed with a water pistol, treating an affair of honour between gentlemen as a spectacle and a joke. Geoffrey was understandably enraged and demanded that Crofts prepare properly. And then, according to a contemporary newspaper, Geoffrey, running his horse in full career, shot his antagonist in the head and left him dead on the spot. 
So, not only was Geoffrey a good enough horseman and a cool enough head to gallop straight at another man who was ready to kill him, but also a good enough marksman with an unwieldy early modern pistol to take out a moving human target with a single shot. As a feat of arms, it is extraordinary. It was also politically risky and very, very illegal. So after the duel, Henrietta Maria wrote both to her sister-in-law, Anne of Austria, the regent of France, and to her cousin, the Cardinal Mazarin. Mazarin was, as all readers of the sequel to The Three Musketeers will know, the de facto head of government during the minority of Louis XIV. So it was to him that the queen appealed for the power to administer any punishments as she saw fit, rather than leaving Geoffrey to the mercies of the courts in a foreign country. This favor was granted. Geoffrey was banished from the court. Punishment, indeed, but also a way of removing him from a complicated political situation and saving him from judicial consequences for breaking the law and killing a man. Geoffrey was still only 25 years old. This would clearly be the place to begin a new episode in the miniseries he deserves. But when it comes to historical fact, we know very little about the next 25 years of Geoffrey's life. The early accounts of his life say only this, that he was taken captive by pirates, yes, again, and sold into slavery in North Africa, along what was then known in England as the Barbary Coast. This is pretty much all we know. The pirates of the Barbary Coast, it must be said, were dreaded. They were rich, they were ruthless, and they were very, very efficient. Spanish sources describe their ships as gliding through the water like fish. The crews of these ships were multi-ethnic and multilingual, and they made a business of slavery. Jeffrey's biography describes him as being taken by a Turkish pirate and receiving hard treatment among the Turks, but this is the racist inexactness of 17th century England. We don't know what precisely Jeffrey did during his years of captivity or where he was taken, though it is likely he ended up initially in one of the prosperous port cities managed by the Corsairs, Algiers, Tripoli, or Tunis. That we don't hear of Jeffrey again for over 20 years suggests that he was in captivity for much of this time. The biographical sketch of him published in 1662 cuts off abruptly after his duel, and Fuller appears to have believed he was imprisoned as a result of that duel. One oblique record of Geoffrey during this time comes from a baptismal record. His younger brother Samuel named his eldest son Geoffrey, after a beloved brother perhaps believed dead. But by 1669, Geoffrey was back in England to sign, in a shaky hand, a receipt. He was there because he had been ransomed back, one of many English captives bought back by the government at a set price. Geoffrey apparently made light of his own experiences in captivity, but it's hard to infer the tone and content of his stories from what survives in his early biographies. For one thing, he had grown while in captivity, to a height of three feet and nine inches. Geoffrey himself said this was a result of hard work and beatings while enslaved. Wright was a bit skeptical of this story since such treatment would usually, if anything, stunt growth, but he says, let the naturalists reconcile it. Geoffrey stayed for some time near the place of his birth, living on pensions provided by the Duke of Buckingham and others. After about a decade, though, he returned to London following the death of his brother Samuel in 1676. With no family left in Rutland, he appears to have decided the capital was the place for him. But as Wright recounts, those were troublesome times. In 1678, Geoffrey was arrested and imprisoned again, not for the misfortune of being English, nor for a duel, but for the crime of being a Catholic, and suspected, therefore, of machinations against the state. We don't know precisely how long he was imprisoned, or why he was eventually released. In 1682, not long after his release, Geoffrey died, possibly having returned to Rutland. 
It's a strange and slightly anticlimactic end to a very extraordinary life. While still a child, Geoffrey Hudson began his career as a court dwarf, distinguished by and famous for his size, a curiosity and a spectacle. But by the time he was in his early 20s, he was a queen's confidant and companion, and a captain of horse in a time of civil war. His divers roles at the English court as performer, courtier, and diplomat excited both admiration and envy. And as his fatal duel with Crofts illustrates, he was prepared to defend his honour, like any gentleman of his period. His life story was irresistible to his contemporaries, in part because of ableism, and in part because of losses in the historical record it's been obscure since. But I think it's a fascinating life, that of a complex and interesting man, one who, according to a contemporary poet, encapsulated the world in small. This and all of our footnoting history episodes are available captioned on our YouTube channel. Thank you for listening and subscribing, and until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the